And now, Canada Hoops, hosted by Maddie Ireland. Welcome back to Canada Hoops, everyone. It's your boy, Matty. Your continued support is greatly appreciated. Please continue to like and share us. If you've been following and listening to us for a while, you'll know that on Canada Hoops, we love to talk about Canada basketball and our Canadian Hoopers. Well, today, we got the boss joining us. He is the president and CEO of Canada Basketball. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Mr. Michael Bartlett. Mike, thanks for joining us on Canada Hoops. Oh, my pleasure, Matty. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited, and uh, you know we'll uh, we'll dive deep into the program and all the great stuff. Um, just want to check in. How are things going, man? For you and your family, just you know, professionally, personally, and just navigating our world right now, man. <laughs> yeah, well, like everybody, it's uh, you think you have a plan, and then uh, you realize you don't. So. Right. We've been we've been fortunate. I've got uh, three kids uh, that are back in school. All are are staying healthy. Uh, we've got a really good school system here. I, I live in Stratford, Ontario. Uh, my wife's a teacher. She's been in and out of a lot of schools. Uh, we've managed to avoid it. I had a little run with uh, COVID pre holidays, but um, you know, thankfully for that vaccination, uh, felt pretty good through it. I, I lucked out. So yeah, we're we're doing okay. This is. This is the new reality. I was talking to some folks the other day uh, when we when we started our uh, staff meeting. I said the only thing we can be certain of is that we don't really know what's around the corner. So it's it's Plan B, Plan C, Plan D, planning time, right? Um, and be smart enough as people and as as professionals to pivot to those plans when we need to. You can't you can't just rely on your A plan anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. What do you think? Uh... And I'm glad to hear everyone's doing well. That that that's good to hear. Uh, you know what? What have you talked about pivoting? What have you kind of learned the most through this time? Maybe just with especially with your new role with the program. Yeah, I, I think, and actually, we we seem to be relearning uh, as as we go. I think we got into this, especially in sport, right? So we go into. Olympic qualifiers would go into the Olympics, you know, the big talk of like, make sure you're vaccinated. That'll keep, uh, you know, COVID away. We can play. If we're vaccinated, we can play. Right. Um, and then lo and behold, here comes Omicron. And that doesn't mean what it used to now vaccination, um, you know, will still keep you for the most part, uh, should keep you healthy and should keep your immune system fighting it, fighting it off. But the reality is, um, in three or six short months, the entire sport landscape had to like, oh gosh, that's not enough. That's not enough to make sure that we continue to play. So this whole concept of having reserve players on the ready and deeper benches and players that um, you know might not play, but you've got to make sure that they put their hand up and go into the protocols. We're heading to Japan right now. Right. Uh, the women's team, uh, the staff is now there, landed safely. At, and what is it today? February 3rd. Yeah. Players start arriving between the 4th, 5th, and 6th. Um, we're traveling heavy, so to speak. Like we, we sought permission from FIBA and from Japan and made a decision as a, as a federation to have 19 players made available for what is going to be eventually a roster of 12. They're all testing negative. You know, when they get on the plane, they should all get off the plane testing negative, but then they're going to be in a, in a different environment, a different country. Um, and there's a chance with the way that this virus is going. Uh, with the strain of the virus that one, two, three could end up with Omicron as a result of that travel exposure. Even So back in the day and back by back in the day, I mean, 12 months ago, you'd send 12 players to a tournament. Right. Uh, now we're going to take 19 and send seven home before the tournament even begins um, just to make sure we have enough to play with. So it's, it's that adjustment and, and willingness as a federation to, or any business to recognize that those are now just core operating costs. It's what you have to do to get through to your end objective. It's not 
something that you think about doing. It's something you have to do because the last thing, like we've seen what happens when, when teams and businesses don't plan well enough, all of a sudden you got to, in our case, we'd have a bench of, you know, we'd have eight people um, right. suiting up for a game. We can't, we can't afford to do that. Not, not and be competitive. So we got to, we got to plan to be competitive, which means we got to go a lot further with our, with our roster strategies. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're on top of it and uh, very aware of what's necessary and, Shout out the women that are making the uh, the sacrifice and the e- oh. effort to go there with knowing that, you know, some of them won't stay to play, but they're making the trip anyway. So that's, yeah. you know, major props to the women doing that for sure. Yeah, not not to, you know, marketing speak this too much, but we when we built the Mad Love campaign last year, right? Um, I don't think anybody anticipated um, that this, like what they're doing right now is a version of Mad Love. Uh, you know, Mad Love was designed to shine a light on uh, the inequities in in sport uh, across genders, their opportunities, their compensation, their exposure in media. And uh, even we called ourselves out as an organization. They weren't traveling the same, perhaps not to staying in, in the same accommodations as the men's program. Done. We're not doing that anymore. We're calling ourselves to the mat on that. But um, it also demonstrates that these athletes, unbelievable uh, women, are willing to do the tough, tough, tough stuff to represent their country. And uh, I, I get inspired every day that I um, speak with our, our women's program athletes and leaders and seeing what they're willing to do, just even seven of them heading to Japan, perhaps not playing, just shows what this program and country means to them. Yeah, absolutely. The women have been doing that for a long time, so we appreciate that. Uh, Mike, can we go back a little bit? Just yeah, you could take sure. us back as a, a young Michael and, you know, growing up, and uh, obviously you have a, a clear passion for sports. So how did that develop? Um, where, did, where did that just start to grow for you? Well, it's it's funny. I uh, So far in my career, I've worked for a basketball, a hockey, a soccer, and a football team. Right. Uh, dating back to my days at MLSC, and I grew up playing baseball. <laughs> I haven't worked for the Jays. I don't plan on working for the Jays. Right. Um, but it, like, I, I loved sports. It was I didn't. I wasn't much of a reader until all of a sudden my dad dropped a Sports Illustrated on my lap, and then it was like I'll read everything as long as it's uh, kind of within the the walls of this magazine or within the context of sport. The sports page was always something I grabbed first. So, you name it, I was consuming it. I was watching it. Uh, I was enthused by it. We actually had a, a good friend, um, Mike Cannon, lived a few streets down. He passed away far too far too early. Um, he was involved in the sport business. He was actually involved with uh, the 72 Summit um, Series as a staff member on Team Canada. Cool. Was involved as an original staff member of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, and then he graduated. Graduated. He ended up being, uh, you know, a somebody who worked with Labatt who was still associated with the Blue Jays. And so I knew sport was a business and, and that always interested me. Uh, and I spent a lot of time talking to people and friends of his about that kind of stuff as a teenager. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about being in the business of sport. Uh, I knew I was never going to be an athlete professionally. It was you know just something to do with your friends and, you know, stay out of trouble. And that was good for me. It taught me a lot, but um, yeah, I just, uh, I always knew that it was out there, but I didn't actually pursue it per se uh, until I got older. And, and I was, my career path was actually taking me down, you know, the charitable landscape. I was running a, a hospital campaign for my hometown hospital in Oakville. Okay. And a friend, a friend of mine sent me a posting for a job as executive director of MLSE foundation. Um, this was my perfect combo. It's sports, it's business, it's fundraising. Oh my gosh, I could do it all. Right. And, but I didn't think too much about it. And I just, I remember sitting, actually, I was watching a leaf game on TV and banging out a resume and sent it in. But of course, I'm sure there's going to be two, 300 people that apply for this job. And I didn't have a network within MLSC that, that I was you know, reaching out to, or that I knew of. And lo and behold, somehow I ended up with a job and it just, it opened up. It reminded me again, that as a kid, I always wanted to be in that environment, but I never really knew how to get into it. And I didn't pursue it. I, I, 
I didn't uh, plan too hard to, to get into it. But once I was in it, I knew this is where I want to be for life. So that was, I spent 10 years at MLSC. I, I started with the foundation, ended up on the corporate side running events in community relations, government relations. And then, you know, I, I interacted with Canada basketball a lot just based on the nature of my portfolio. And right. um, when I actually think back, like I've been an event guy for most of my life. The first event I ever planned with, with my best friend, Trevor Nash, we did a high school project to run a charity event. That, that was the project in the class. And we ran a charity two-on-two basketball tournament with our buddies. Nice. And uh, we took over the school playground or uh, the school outdoor nets one Saturday afternoon. And we had 20 teams of two, all guys that we were friends with. Everyone threw their money in the hat for charity. And at the end of it, somebody had the pride of winning. And the charity got some money and we planned our first event and it was a basketball event. And now I'm in the basketball event business. And I tell that story a lot like this is where it started and now it's time to continue. That's cool. I love it. Uh, you know, with your role at MLSC, you know, you were vital in the success of the 2016 NBA all-star game that um, was a phenomenal weekend. Um, you know, all of Canada was definitely watching that that All Star Game and weekend has been highly regarded as one of the best ever. Uh, I know it was cold there; uh, everyone, everyone was battling that. But from your time at MLSE, that event, you know, what do you take uh, from those experiences now in your role with Canada Basketball? MLSE taught me a ton about ambition, um, and and quite frankly, I'll, I'll tell a little story about that All Star process. Um, I put my hand up one day to my boss, Shannon Hosford, who's now the CMO there and said like, I'd like to, can I help? And she's like, yeah, you know what? Like, what if we, I was, I was actually with the foundation at the time. What if we second you to just project manage this thing because it's a beast. And right. I liked collaborative projects like that. And, but like what I didn't anticipate was how big it was going to get and how outside of the lines we were going to draw. <laughs> Uh, there, the way that the NBA All-Star Game works, any league-run event, you bid on it, right. pay them for their rights to host it, and then they essentially come in, take the keys from your house, throw the party, and leave. Your job really is just to make sure that the venue is running and the travel is organized. And Actually, the NBA does most of that, too. So Tim Lewicki was the, the president CEO of MLSC at the time. He right. said, we're going to do this bigger than anyone. So here's what the NBA expects of you. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to create an event around the event because I had been to a few all-star games, um, hockey and basketball. And it's actually the wrappings around the event that people tend to talk about. Nike comes in and does this amazing party takeover and, and another brand comes over, takes another, does another, you know, activation. And everyone talks about the activations around the event. And Tim's idea was what if we were the activators? Right. So we created that, what was called True North, that party tent down the street. Because um, typically what would happen in NBA All-Star Games, everyone else is throwing parties. And you lose you lose your key stakeholders, your VIPs, your athletes to everyone else's thing. What if we controlled where everyone was once the game was done? Right. So we built this, gosh, it was probably a 40,000 square foot tent, um, you know, down the street from, uh, at the time, would have been Air Canada Center. And... Uh, we threw the party that everyone came to. And I ended up being kind of the producer of, of the party stuff. And what I learned very quickly was um, being ambitious like that, doing things big like that, taking big swings. Don't always work financially. I'll tell you, like from a financial perspective, um, I'm going to call it today an investment, but it was a pure loss. Right, right. <laughs> um, but from a brand perspective, even within the NBA, reputation that the Toronto Raptors and Toronto got from taking that big swing. The best compliment that we got was that a year and a half later, the NBA changed the bid requirements so that anyone bidding on the NBA all-star game from there on in. And I think it actually starts this year, which uh, Cleveland was the first team under that new bid guideline has to replicate owning the atmosphere activations and parties around the all-star game the host team has to now own that experience well wow. so because of the big swing that we took we rewrote the book and you know for me 
there was no bigger compliment than to be associated with something that had the NBA say, hmm, there's a different way to do this. And, you know, that's that's a real thing for me now to take to Canada basketball because we start almost every meeting with, is there a different way to do this? And giving our staff freedom to be ambitious and color outside the lines, um, that's my job to give them permission because it's not all going to work. And every once in a while, it's not also going to lead to the financial gains that you want. But if you're creating a culture where that ambition is celebrated, uh, more often than not, you'll win. Well, those are great experiences. And I know uh, the Canadian basketball community and family is is glad you are now the CEO. And you were named the CEO and president on October 1st of 2021 Mm -hmm. with the previous boss, Glenn Grunwald calling you a dynamic leader you know what did it mean to have glenn say that and if you can talk about you know the impact glenn had on that program himself too because you know he's made such a a huge difference for canada basketball too yeah every once in a while more often than once in a while actually i find myself pinching myself that i'm hanging out and talking to and and learning from the people that i used to grow up reading about um being a raptor nut for a good you know for their entire lifetime and a good, good part of my adult life. Um, you know, I followed everything Glenn Grunwald said, you know, the, the trades, the moves, Vince Carter, all that, like this, he was Glenn Grunwald. Right. He is Glenn Grunwald. Right. Um, so I, I've struck a friendship up with him over the past three, four or five years, uh, then getting a chance to work for him as COO, uh, while he was CEO and then, you know, take the baton from him. Um, absolute, gem of a human he is the nicest guy in every room he walks into uh, he's the smartest basketball mind in every room he walks into um and he has been nothing but gracious in um offering you know i asked him can you stay on like we've got some big projects that we need um carried out with the national training center and and just even the continuation of our pipeline development and he gets that more than anyone so um it's been an absolute pleasure to learn from him, to work with him, to pick up the phone and just shoot the gab with him. Um, he's just a great human. And um, he understands what winning looks like, what risking to win looks like. Uh, but he gave us, like, remember, when he landed at Canada Basketball, it was a bit shaky, you know, financially and, and even pipeline development-wise. And he steadied the ship to the point where there's such a solid foundation now, you can now afford to be ambitious, really ambitious on top of that solid foundation. Um, you do need the bedrock of a solid foundation, though, and Glenn has given us that and continues to give us that uh, as a consultant advisor. Yeah, well, and he, you know, he knows you're the the right person to lead the program with. I think that speaks volumes, and uh, you know, we feel like as a community and a family, the, the program's in really good hands. Um, mm-hmm. For you personally, you know, how special is it to start leading the program at a time where you know many dub it, you know, the golden age of Canadian basketball? I mean, what what does that mean to you? Well, it's uh, listen, I, it's the golden potential golden age for right, sure. Right. Uh, and, and I do, I do believe very much in, uh, we got to hold ourselves accountable to winning. It's not, it, yes, it is the golden age and there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be hitting podiums. So now we got to hit podiums. We got to win. Uh, what does this mean for me? Listen, I grew up, I, I remember, um, my dad, my dad just passed. Um, Sorry to like, hear that. My dad, yeah, thank you. Um, but like a lot of my energy for the Olympic movement, those five rings came from my mom and dad and I. I'm an only child. I can remember watching the Seoul Olympics with Ben make that that run, with Donovan in 96 make that run. Right. Um, you know, some iconic Team Canada moments on the hockey side that I've actually been at. Uh, I was at the 2010 Olympics as a fan, just bought a ticket, ended up at that gold medal game somehow. Yeah. Um, those rings are, they're powerful and I've always wanted to be associated with them somehow. Never again. I don't, I don't overly chart or think about how, um, but now this opportunity with Canada basketball to help support this program, achieve its Olympic ambitions. I can't think of anything I'd be more proud to do, uh, in my career. And, we have a run to Paris and then again to 2028. And then again, you think Brisbane 2032. There's absolutely no reason why our teams 
shouldn't be competing, you know, for top three every single time the Olympics runs from here on in. We have that potential looking at the pipeline of talent. I I look at the, the women who couldn't go to Japan because they have NCAA obligations right, right. now. Right. Maddie, there's a real possibility. We could have a starting 12 that is actually in the NCAA right now that could compete with the starting 12 that we have going to Japan. Like we now got that depth on the women's side to match the depth on the men's side. And the men's side is just going to get like, we're going to have three in the first two rounds, four in the first two rounds of the NCAA or NBA draft this year, likely. Yeah. So it's, it's the talent will continue to churn out uh, amazing athletes. Um, And, to th- I've I've caught myself daydreaming every once in a while, thinking about being at Paris and listening to our national anthem at a basketball event. Um, the first the first time I heard the national anthem, actually, while I was an employee at Canada Basketball, um, was the first game that we had played against. It was Greece in Victoria for the OQT. Right. I've heard the national anthem how many times in my life? How many arenas and sporting events have I been to in my life, both professionally and personally? And for the first time in my life, it hit differently right. because I was associated with the country. It, I, I, even when I was interviewing for the job, I said, like, this is I want to serve my country. I'm never going into politics. I made my wife that promise. So, like, this is yeah. the next way I can do it. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. Uh, I think you're, you're touching on a lot of points that uh, a lot of us are passionate about. I mean, um, you know, just like I've mentioned to you before, I just followed the program for so long. Uh the 2000 team just captivated me and, and what Steve and those guys were doing. And I mean, mm-hmm. um, the depth is there. How, like I've heard you talk about Canada basketball, the program, you know, looking at it like the business of basketball and, and you know, reinvesting that money. How do you, how do you take your, your wins on the business side and then, really capitalize on the, on the growth of the game in the country and that talent. How do you, you know, incorporate that together? Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, we've, we really landed on, I think clarity of what that looks like and, and it's kind of a cycle. Uh, and it's, it's as simple as that for us winning at the very top winning is right. performance based. It's sport based. It's the on court objective, but winning, uh, creates stories stories that are now more powerful stories like you're telling about the 20 uh the 2000 team uh that are captivating well guess what that 2024 team and that 2028 team there's going to be moments like we're seeing in soccer right now right and i'm so so proud and happy for them we're going to have those moments that become dinner table conversations so winning creates the stories that we tell the stories that we tell creates the things that we sell so commercializing the wins is really what you're doing is commercializing the brand association with the stories right. that are coming from it. And I've learned that MLSC was a great teaching ground for that. Um, that money that we can create through strong partnerships now, like Sportsnet, our partnership with Sportsnet gives us so many more assets for us to offer to partners that want to be part of this and then showcase their involvement with us. More games on broadcast, uh, you know, just so many features and stories that we can do with that. Thank you for Sportsnet, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, no I apologize for interrupting, but man, it's just like, yeah. that was a thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it is, it is a game changer for us to have that network see the potential. We've gone from what would normally be seven or eight, you know, games a year that are jammed onto DAZN somewhere right. for us, for you and I to go hunting for, Maddie. Yeah. Uh, that they're going to be nationally televised uh, games every time we, that we play on the senior team. And, and they're even talking about down the line age group teams when we've got players of interest that are captivating the country and, you know, future draft picks. Like that's all going to be, um, you know, something that people can now, if you can see it, you can be it, you can follow it, you can want to be a part of it. So, and because my job is also to captivate corporate partners to uh, corporate partners towards that. Um, we got more opportunity to do it. So now what do you do with all that new investment dollar? Well, you invest that back into two things. Our funnel of players needs to continue uh, to pace. 
you know, for you to have a great product at the bottom of the funnel, you need to put more people into the top of the funnel at all times. So we have to invest more in the growth of the game. That's going to be by co-investing in programs with our provincial partners or all our provincial territory sporting organizations across the country so that we can invest in more grassroots program that turns into elite program that turns into national pipeline. Um, that's one way to invest. And the other is straight up competitive advantages uh, to make our national teams, age group and senior team better. We just put one of those things that you, you look at actually just recently in decisions we've made about coaching. Nick Nurse, head coach of our men's program. Yeah. We needed to find Gordy uh, Herbert had an awesome opportunity to go over and be the head coach of the German program. So our kind of off window, our winter window head coach needed to be replaced. Right. Um, so we could just go find one for one, but instead we talked to the Raptors, we looked at the system and the whole point of, you know, getting better as a program is also continuity so that the head coach is kind of the head coach all the time, even when he or she can't be. Uh, well, the best way to do that is to go ask Nick's two assistants with the Raptors who are also connected to Team Canada. Well, why don't they be head coaches in the off period? Well, that's a complicated matter because you're going to have to ask them to leave their Toronto Raptors team. You know, end of this month, um, Nate and Nate are going to leave the Raptors to coach Team Canada again down in the Dominican Republic. And that's an investment in dollars for us to bring two highly skilled NBA coaches into our program for the off windows or for the winter windows. And, uh, but we made that investment. That's an investment in a competitive advantage. We were down the line on the woman's head coaching uh, decision. And man, we had some amazing candidates, all globally recognized head coaches. And we get to the end of like trying to decide you know, who should we get, who should we get? Well, why do we need to settle on just one? And somebody said, can we do that? I'm like, we can do whatever we want. Nice. <laughs> do we have the investment? Do we believe that hiring more than just one is a competitive advantage for us? And how does that make us more competitive? So, you know, you hire Victor, an absolute international winner and in star. Right. Um, understands a fast athletic brand of basketball. Those are our athletes understands the FIBA game has win has won at every level right. club and and FIBA and then with Noel one of the things that we don't have in our system right now Maddie is a strong relationship with the women's NCAA head coaches and athletic directors well guess who does Noel who came through the system right Noel who is a WNBA head coach and is drafting those players each and every year so now we've got Victor, FIBA expert, Noel, NCAA and North American game, WNBA expert. And then you match that with Stephen Carley, who are Canadian system experts, Canadian athlete experts, and know the ecosystem so that they can impart that knowledge for Noel and, and Victor to, you know, create a four-pack super team. Right. That's a competitive advantage. So again, uh, investing back into these advantages is what we have to do. That's how we... Um, I'm, I'm, and it's a good thing for Canada. I'm never going to take a basketball shot on our team. Yeah, yeah. What I have to, what I have to do though, is make sure that the right coaches, the right tools. You know, we're talking a lot now about performance sport tech. What competitive advantages should we be investing in tech wise to make our teams that much smarter? NBA level, WNBA level smarts. There's not a lot of that money being spent in the FIBA world, so maybe we gain a competitive advantage by thinking about that too. Wow, great stuff, man. Uh, you know, the depth is is incredible. Uh, really quick, I know like Hamilton's, you know, the National Training Center. Um, is that hopefully a quick reality at some point? I know the land has kind of been uh, yeah, gift, gifted the program uh, more or less. Do you think um, that's something that's going to come to fruition, you know, fairly soon? Yeah, well, we're going to know one way or the other very soon. Okay. Um, you know, the, there are some big government budget decisions coming out of Ottawa shortly. Okay. And, you know, with uh, the province, there's an election coming. So this is the time to have those conversations as well because they're setting their budget pre-election too. So we're going to know very soon whether or not the standalone Canada Basketball National Training Centre can be a reality in Hamilton. I sure hope it can. Um, right. I think it's a game changer again for us. 
but in you know kind of going back to where we started uh, plan b plan c plan d uh, we're looking at other models as well. Maybe we're not doing a standalone facility, but we're finding a partner that we share space with and would require less funding. And, um, you know, thinking about it, is Canada basketball going to be filling that gym 24-7, 365? No. So could we live with a shared facility as long as there was the appropriate uh, number of courts when we need it? We could. Right. Uh, it's not the ideal. I'd love. I'd love our own place uh, so that we could build a hall of fame into that. We could build some athlete continuity into and, and a home base for them. Hamilton's got a great backstory too with respect to the hoops culture there. You look at Shea. You look at Kia. Like two yeah. of our biggest stars are Hamilton, born and raised. Yeah. So uh, there's a cool Hamilton story. I think that would uh, that would bubble as well. And, and that's a great basketball community. But uh, we have to be ready for Plan B, C, and D. And and if we need it, I think there's a few options there for us. Yeah, it sounds exciting. And I think uh, Hamilton would be a great spot. I can't uh, can't argue with that, uh, Mike. I just want to touch on, you know, sort of the the program. With respect to player buy-in, uh, it seems like an all-time high. There's guys and men and women that have just, you know, said, "Yeah, I'm doing this. I want to play." You know, from your point of view, I guess first of all, where's where do you feel like it's at? I know we can always improve, but um, my other question is, how much are you now in your role going back to alumni, let's say, and just asking them about, hey? What do you think about this? Or from your time with the program, what what do you think can you improve? Are you like establishing those relationships as well with, with former players? Yeah, and I'll, I'll work backwards. So your your last question first. Um, the answer to that, Maddie, is yes. I've spent a considerable amount of time reaching out to alumni, especially the recently retired, the, the ones that have come through the program at a time when, you know, we didn't have – the multi-million dollar, you know, a roster full of multi-million dollar capable athletes right. um, that, that were coming through at the NBA circles. So what made them show up? What made them um, put their hand up every time, answer the call? Javon Shepard, Jermaine Anderson, Joel Anthony, um, Maya, or sorry, Miranda Aim. Um, you know, these are recently retired athletes that I'm learning a lot from, right. uh, Lizanne Murphy. Uh, and I'm so glad that I started with those conversations. It's not, uh, honestly, um, and, and I spent enough time in pro sports. Like I'm, I'm not running around tapping our current senior team athletes on the shoulder all the time. They've got a job to do. they got to focus. In fact, many of them have two or three jobs to do. The women, some of them have four or five basketball jobs to do. So right. I'm not getting in their way. What I am doing is promising that I'm going to learn uh, from past experiences to make sure that we invest in brag worthy moments for them uh, as current athletes. So the alumni have taught me a lot. I've also heard so like I've heard the war stories. I've heard what it was like. I heard about some of these flights that, you know, the flight was so so cheap and so full that there was baggage in the middle of the aisles. You know, back in the day. Right. Um, never again. That's got to be my promise to the next gen. Right. Never again. Right. Uh, I actually, you know, there's two moments that that ring out to me where I have actually spoken to the current senior team athletes. Um, a, a group that we actually met with in, in Las Vegas, Nick, Nick Nurse and Rowan Barrett pulled together a group of, of athletes from the NBA that we want to be our core moving forward. And there was good, open, honest dialogue about what core means and what that commitment needs to look like. And, and the only thing I said was, listen, you, you guys, if we're doing our job, you never spend any time with me. Like, my job is to make sure, and we had a pretty nice fancy dinner at a restaurant, and, and one of the players said, like, hey, I've been trying to get in this restaurant for five years. The fact that Canada basketball got me in, that shows that things are changing. No doubt. Um, but, like, that's part of, I'm an experienced guy. I'm an experienced junkie. That's the, the NBA All-Star lesson, right? Right. Show people a good time. Give them a great experience. Um, so we're bringing some of that into our athlete relationship strategies as well. How can we give them those brag worthy moments that playing for Canada turns into um, the thing that they tell their parents, about, they tell their spouse and partner about, they tell their athletes about. I made the joke of like the US, the USA team, I forgot, what was it, Brazil, they pulled up the cruise ship. Uh, they had their, their team on a cruise ship outside the Olympic Village rather than being the Olympic Village. So what's our cruise ship moment? Right. right? 
Uh, and with the women, it was um, when they were in their training camp here in November. And I spoke very openly and honestly about equity, uh, about treating them like the stars that they are and making sure that we're investing in them, but also um, supporting them to have their voice on whatever topic they want their voice on. So on matters of, of equity, inclusion, uh, and diversity, on matters of uh, racialization and, and um, you know, the treatment of, of racialized uh, athletes through the system, unconscious biases. Our women have um, lived experiences that need to be shared uh, with the greater public, Sportsnet gives us a platform um, to help them with that. So my commitment isn't or isn't just we're going to invest in your experience, but we're also going to invest in your voice to make sure that you've got the platforms to lead and we've got your back 100% of the time. Awesome. Uh, the one-on-one thing I want to touch on here real quick, you know, the women's program has had recent success, ranked fourth in the world. There's been a consistent uh, commitment on their part. Um, they've been rock stars doing that. Is there transferable, you know, principles you can kind of relate to the men's program too that you know you think is is going to work on the men's side and, and will provide results too, just with respect to how successful the women have been? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've spent a little bit of time, a lot of time actually, since October, and, and being more involved on the basketball side of talking about one team. Right. I actually left an environment at MLSC where there were six or seven teams, if you count the, the uh, like the AHL and, and G League teams. Um, and I thought I was going to a culture that was one team. Right. right. Everybody wears the same jersey. It's one team. Right. And the reality of it is we can't operate like that. There's a men's and women's they're different teams. There's a senior and then five age group teams. Those are all different teams. I ended up going from seven to 12. Right. And I didn't, I didn't anticipate that. Right. So what are some of the things that we can do to create uh, more continuity and, and one team culture across all of those teams? So a big part of it is, um, you know, what I think the women can teach the men is the value of showing up, is the value of using your voice on matters um, that matter in Canada. And I think for the men, um, I think the benefit that they can have for the women's program is, quite frankly, um, you know, making good on the promises that the women have done, but then also using their own voices to propel the women's game forward and push for equity and, and support WNBA and, and women's European league uh, activities. Um, you know, the, the way that they, you know, we've seen a, a great groundswell in the crossover between WNBA and NBA uh, influencers and the way that they're supporting each other. Like I want to create, training camps that run parallel as much as possible, whether it be men's and women's or whether it be senior team and age group, um, a little trick out of the hockey Canada book. They do that a lot. Right. Um, their senior team doesn't get together without one of their age group teams also kind of being in the same city for a training camp as well. The mentorship that happens from there is, is priceless. So we're going to be doing a lot more of that. And then the crossover uh, experiences between the men's and women's programs, their FIBA, competition schedules don't always line up right and that's often been an excuse well yeah they the men have to play here and the women have to play there okay but can we just get them together in the middle of july for the sake of getting them together in the middle of july right all we got to do is ask and as a federation all we have to do is then invest in the dollars to actually create that experience so over time i think you'll see a lot more of that as well awesome uh the cebl rising growing league a partnership with Canada basketball, you know, how great has the CEBL been, you know, from your point of view for the game in the country, uh, putting more teams and more markets, uh, just give us your thoughts on, on that league and that partnership. Yeah. Mike Morreale, uh, has, has become a quick friend yeah. of mine. Um, awesome. Awesome group of people over there doing, um, quite frankly, something that's long overdue for basketball in this country, a domestic league, uh, and a thriving domestic league, I think, will be a game changer for us down the line as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I just love seeing uh, players coming out of that league into the, you know, what started as emergency roster roles for the the NBA, and now some of them are landing, uh, you know, more permanent roles. It's wonderful. Right. It's not just about 
the players, um, Mike and I, his, uh, his staff and my staff talking a lot about purposeful crossover of coaching opportunities, how some of our coaches, high talent um, coaches identified for our age group teams might get their first pro shot on a CBL bench. I think you can look for something like that uh, in the near future, that kind of purposeful strategy. Geez, even junior staff, marketing staff, scouts, uh, performance analysis staff, how are we creating a crossover of opportunity? Uh, I spoke, uh, I was asked very, very clearly, um, you know, why when we selected our women's head coach and, and assistant head coach, why they weren't Canadians. And we, we established criteria for the, the job. And eventually, as we got further down the line, we recognized that pro women's head coaching experience was the number one criteria. It is not anyone in Canada's fault right. that very few people, if any, have pro women's head coaching experience. So how do we create more pro head coaching experience for um, coaches that have been identified as, as high potential? Well, we need partnerships like the CEBL to, we as the federation should be advocating for that coach. It shouldn't just be up to them. It should actually, maybe we create a system that funnels them towards those opportunities. Or, you know, again, no, these are dreamscapes right now, but I know the CEBL and we would be very much interested in helping. Like, what does a women's domestic pro league look like connected to the CEBL so that, one of the problems we're having getting our athletes to Japan for this upcoming tournament is that they're flying from all over the world, which means they, they've been exposed to the Omicron variant in different places at different times. You know, they're not centralized and they can't make a decent living playing the game that they love, the game that they deserve to make a decent living playing. They can't do that in Canada. Right. There's no domestic pro league for them. So we got to get there. We do. I don't know how long it's going to take. And I honestly don't know what role Canada basketball will play in it. But I know if my job is to be the ambassador for the health of the game of this country, uh, I'm going to be heavily, heavily involved in making sure that we get the right network of people and, and perhaps funding partners and all that kind of stuff to make those types of things possible, whether it be more opportunities for coaches, more opportunities for women to play, or I'd love it too that our our men who, who don't make it into the NBA pipeline or the G League pipeline have a thriving domestic league to play in under the umbrella of Canada without having to go over and play in Europe and leave their families or cart their families around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great league. I've watched it. I went to Edmonton for championship weekend. Um, you know, I think a women's league uh, with a similar blueprint would be incredible. I believe we'll get there. Uh, like you said, we don't know when, but, you know, the demand is there, um, you know, and it's an exciting time. Can we just really talk quick? We mentioned before we recorded, there's been lots of hints of the, the summer core for the, the men's mm -hmm. program and what that looks like. Without naming names, I, I don't want you to name names. And, um, you know, does that core look strong? And is there a, you know, from that, that core group, is there a lot of excitement? Yeah, there is. And, you know, that, that Vegas dinner was step one and, in, in assembling the core. And, right. uh, I give Nick nurse coach nurse, a, a ton of credit, um, for having the ambition to, to bring an idea like that forward and certainly supported very quickly by Rowan Barrett, our, our GM and, and EVP on the men's side. Right. Um, yeah, like, and it's, it's well thought out. It's, it's, it's not, this is the reality too. I think that, that we learned after Victoria, we now have the benefit of having 20, 25 players in the NBA. Right. But you don't just go one through 12 based on skill and say, make a team. Right. Right. So from my vantage point, uh, and I get to be a bit of a fan in the exercise because as I, as I promised everybody, I'm not making basketball decisions for this country. I'll make culture decisions. I'll make, you know, ambitious decisions, but you know, I won't make basketball decisions and nor should I. So getting to watch the conversations that have happened around uh, the roster compilation and also as they've been putting the winter core together, um, what will be most competitive in a FIBA environment? What will be most competitive against 
you know, the top 10 teams that we have to think about beating. But even before that, the six teams that we have to beat before we even qualify, right? So, like, it, it's been an interesting exercise that I think this roster's got the potential to be, you know, our men's summer and winter combined have, a, have the potential to be a world beater for sure. For sure. I think, actually, you saw I, I've, I've become friendly and, and quite – good friends with Jim Tooley down at USA Basketball, so I'm not talking smack, but for their last window, they just put a team together. Right. right? They just put a team together. And they dropped Isaiah Thomas, I think, in the middle of that team with you know two days left in training camp. And yeah. they lost one game and almost lost their second game. You can't basketball cannot be played that way anymore. No. This I had the Sega Genesis Dream Team video game. Right. So like that team, you could just drop and run, right? Right. Because that's where basketball was in 1992, globally. It's not there anymore. So you can't just put 12 men or women together that identify as highly skilled, all star level basketball players and expect them to win. It has, there has to be continuity and there has to be a system and style of play consideration in the, in the makeup of that roster. It's not just your 12 best. It has to be your 12 best for the purpose. And I think they've done that. Uh, they've certainly that we, we've proved, proven to do that in our most recent November window with the men. They're trying to keep as much of that team, you know, together for the next window in February. COVID's probably going to be the only hiccup to that. Right. Um, you know, COVID or injury would be the only hiccup to that. They want to roll out the same core. And then that summer core um, isn't just intended to be the guys that are going to play for us in late June and, and late August in the next two qualifiers, but the next summer and then the next summer. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that type of strategy, uh, the continuity that will come from that, as, as Nick and Rowan will say, That'll be a win by two, lose by two difference right. uh, for this program. Because when you get to Paris uh, and you've played that much together, uh, maybe that win by two is is the difference maker as a result of that continuity. So that's what we're striving for. Well, that's cool. And I'll say this about the windows. I know there's been a lot of debate about them, whether or not people are fans, but people who really follow the program and, uh, you know, people like myself and other fans and whatnot, you know, we love the windows. You get to see the Kyle Wilchers make the the sacrifice and Anthony Bennett and, you know, these guys need a lot of love and they're always willing to play. And so I love watching those guys. Um, they need a lot of shine and, you know, the summer core, we're looking forward to seeing that. And, you know, in 23, when we're looking at the world cup and beyond to Paris and, um, you know, I think the program is, just in the in the in great shape, Mike. In great hands, you know. We're excited that you're at the helm, and uh, you know there's there's a lot of optimism. So, just I'll speak for the fans out there. You know, keep doing what you're doing. We you know we know we're in good hands. Appreciate that. Well, thank you, Matty. I uh, it's it's a pleasure pleasure to do the work. It's a pleasure to uh, to try and you know, keep up with the excitement of the program yeah. and try and match that excitement of our athletes and the fans. And I really appreciate the coverage that you provide to the program too, and all your support. No, for sure. We're not done. Uh, listeners will know. I always ask, they got a top five, uh, yeah. of all time for Canada basketball, but you want to do a different spin on it there. So I'll let you, uh, yeah. I'll let you go with. Well, yeah, you, you, you tossed me that, you know, get thinking about your top five and I could come up with a top five for sure. Yeah. Um, but I want I want to drop some names that that maybe ten years ago become top five stories for people. I think that's you know I've really been diving into that next gen. I love family stories. Yeah. Like we've got the Barrett connection now with RJ and Rowan. And, yeah. Um, but like, watch out for the Betty Aku family. Uh, yeah. Watch out for the Prospers, Olivia and Cass, um, the Nemhards. Like, yeah. They're both. One's going to get drafted this summer. Probably one's going to get drafted in a few summers. So, like, we're starting to I, I grow up hearing about the 
the Sutter family in hockey. Well, we're going to have our version of that in basketball in the not too distant future, right. uh, which is, which is a lot of fun um, name. And I'm sure you guys have all heard him too. Like Olivier Ryu, seven foot four, right. 15 years old, Guinness book of world records for tallest 15 year old. Um, and the kid can play like, yeah. it, it's not like he's, it's, he's got skills. It's unbelievable to watch him handle the ball. And then Toby Fournier, I don't know if you saw the, the clips on um, overtime, uh, today, you know, 15 year old, um, 15 year old on our women's program, dunking with both hands, yeah. uh, in, in the layup lines, like just absolute world beater potential. So that, that's what I'm talking about with the athleticism, um, of what we have coming through the pipeline. And, and I just, lo- I love the family stories that are also coming from that pipeline as well. Multi, um, brother sister multi-generational like like the barretts and and there'll be more of those too uh it's just it's a fun time to be part of the program and there's a good long pipeline uh, of uh stars and and great stories coming up the coming up the way yeah for sure we appreciate that uh any shout outs or thank you before i I get you out of here well uh i'll be honest like uh i got so many people to thank but it is um brian cooper the the chair of the board at canada basketball has also transformed um, the vision of our, of our board, there's so much more entrepreneurial thinking, I think, than I, even I anticipated. There's some great people around that table that are pouring themselves and their network into where we're going. So I'd, I'd like to thank him. Uh, and then my staff, like I've, I've got some amazing uh, people I work with. Denise uh, Dignard running our, our women's team in Japan right now. Yeah. It's not an easy assignment. Uh, Rowan Barrett, obviously. Uh, Matt Walker, good friend of yours too. And, and mine, like he just yeah. uh, runs a great comm ship for us. Uh, Natalie Burry, who just joined us, um, VP of events. Um, that's who I did all-star with. She ran inside. I ran outside. Um, you know, there's a lot of trust from the trench time that we've had together. And then Ronnie Young, Ron Young, uh, who runs our domestic programs. Um, we're not strong now without Ron running a great uh, domestic uh, and basketball development program for this country. So uh, the strength that we'll see for the next 10 years will be on the back of his work for the last 10 as well. So uh, proud to be teammates with all those. Uh, and then Andrea, Andrea, oh my gosh, I, I can't forget Andrea. Um, okay. You'll ne- nobody will ever hear Andrea's name uh, in the paper. Uh, this organization does not run without her. She's a director of finance and a men. Uh, this organization's had some tough times, some very like, how do we pull it all together? How do we keep the lights on? How do we keep people traveling and training and playing? Um, because of Andrea's efforts, uh, Andrew Drieger, there's absolutely no way we get that done without her. So uh, thanks to her as well. Well, that's great. Uh, well, we truly appreciate you making time to join us on Canada Hoops. Mike, you know, all the best to you and your family. And we're looking forward to what's in store for Canada basketball. Um, everyone's like, like I said, everyone's really excited, man. Yeah, well, it's time to win. We've got all the reason and potential to do it, and uh, we're going to get out of bed every day focused on it. You can promise that. That's awesome. That does it for another episode of Canada Hoops. I want to thank the boss, Mike Barlett, for pulling up. Thank you for listening. Please continue to like and share and follow us. Keep Keep supporting Canada basketball. We will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Canada Hoops.